0: Welcome to Blurish. I'm Diane Planadan and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor and strong for our own personal well-being. We continue our journey today in The Molecule of More, the best-selling book by Dr. Daniel Lieberman and Michael Long. And it's all about that magical dopamine in our brains, which is responsible <laughs> for creativity. And madness. The creative mind is the most potent force on the earth. That's how this chapter starts. I mean, if you know nothing else, that's a fantastic. The creative mind is the most potent force on earth. No oil well, gold mine, or thousand acre farm can compete with the wealth producing possibilities of a creative idea. Creativity is the brain at its best. Mental illness is the opposite. It reflects a brain struggling to manage even the most ordinary challenges of everyday life. Yet madness and genius, the worst and the best the brain can do, both depend on dopamine. Because of this basic chemical connection, madness and genius are more closely connected to each other than either is to the way ordinary brains work. Where does this connection come from? And what does it tell us about the essential nature of both? Let's start with the madness. (laughs) They use schizophrenia as the madness example. And schizophrenia, it says, is a form of psychosis notable for the presence of hallucinations and delusions. Hallucinations can cause a person to see things that aren't really there, feel their touch, even smell them. The most common type of hallucination is the auditory hallucination, hearing voices. Well, hopefully it's a friendly voice, right? Another component of psychosis is delusions. These are fixed beliefs that are inconsistent with the generally accepted view of reality, such as aliens have implanted a computer chip in my brain. But they give a really good example here about John Nash, a Nobel Prize winning mathematician who lived with schizophrenia and was written about in the book, a Beautiful Mind, which later I believe to be quite the popular movie, <laughs> but John Nash, you know, mathematician, devoted to reason, logic, etc., believed extraterrestrial beings were sending his messages. How could this be possible? And Nash simply said, The ideas I had about supernatural beings came to me the same way that my mathematical ideas did. Ha! so where in fact do these ideas come from? One clue comes from what we know about how how to treat schizophrenia. Psychiatrists prescribe medications called antipsychotics that reduce activity within the dopamine desire circuit. At first glance, that seems odd. Stimulation of the desire circuit typically leads to excitement. Wanting, enthusiasm, and motivation, how could excess stimulation cause psychosis? The answer comes from the concept of salience, a phenomenon that will also play a crucial role in understanding the roots of creativity. So if you're a creative mind, this would be really interesting. Salience refers to the degree to which things are important prominent, or conspicuous. One kind of salience is the quality of being unusual. So think about how salient certain things are. When you see a new store opening beside the one that you've been to a hundred times, the one you've been to a hundred times isn't interesting anymore. The new one has captured your attention, and now you're curious, and now you go inside. I love this. So things are salient if they have the potential to affect your future. Things are salient if they trigger desired dopamine. They broadcast the message, wake up, pay attention, get excited. This is important. Come into this store (laughs) your curiosity wants to know what's going on. What happens though if the salience function of the brain malfunctions? If it goes off, even when there's nothing happening that is actually important to you? Imagine you're watching the news and they're talking about somebody, the government's spying program, and suddenly your salience circuit fires for no reason at all. You might then believe that the story on the news has something to do with you. Too much salience or any salience at the wrong time can create delusions. They trigger events rising from obscurity to importance. A little superstition, a little paranoia, you think you're being followed... Black cats, the number thirteen, mm. and then they have a footnote saying: Is superstition a very mild form of delusion, or is it a choice? Research indicates that superstitious people have a preponderance of dopaminergic traits, so there's probably a genetic tendency for some people to adopt superstitious beliefs. I wonder if it's genetic, or is it just learned from your environment? Crossing your fingers, not going under a ladder. Is that genetic? I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but it makes me want to ask some more questions here. So changing cell behavior is how the brain processes information. But in schizophrenia, the brain short-circuits, attaching salience to ordinary things that ought to be familiar and therefore ignored. Another name for this is low-latent inhibition. Latent means hidden, so you hear things, they have a latent talent for music, a hidden talent for music, or a hidden demand for flying cars. (laughs) The way it's used in the phrase latent inhibition is somewhat different. It's not that the thing starts out hidden, it's that we make it hidden because it's not important to us. We inhibit our ability to notice things that are unimportant, so we don't have to waste our attention on them. And that makes complete sense. A good example of this is if you live in an area where you're near a train, and you hear the train going all the time, you're not used to it. You're not familiar yet. But over time, it will seem unimportant, and you will no longer hear the train. Meanwhile, friends come over and they're like, what's that? You didn't actually hear anything. It's actually quite fascinating how we can filter things through our brains. But sometimes our environment is so enriched with new things that latent innovation is unable to pick and choose what is most important. Now, our environments are getting super crowded with people trying to grasp our attention, isn't it? So it says this experience can be exhilarating or frightening depending on the situation and the person who is experiencing it. You ever think you go to a a different country or a different town? Everything seems new and interesting, right? As the new environment becomes familiar, though, we adjust and eventually master it. We separate out the things that will affect us from those that won't. And latent inhibition returns making us comfortable and confident in our new surroundings. We can once again separate the essential from the non-essential. But what if the brain is unable to make this adjustment? What if the most familiar place feels like an alien environment and it's not confined just to schizophrenia? And they talk about various people online who share their stories about how they really struggle to organize their minds One fun example they give in the book is about Winnie the Pooh and his poetry. And when asked, you know, like, why are you using certain words when you do? Like, he has this one poem that has shillings in it, and Piglet didn't like that word, shillings. And this is the response that Pooh gave to him. It is the best way to write poetry, letting things come. There may be chaos inside our heads that require taming by the more logical part of the brain. But there is also treasure. Whether or not you find that shillings improves Pooh's poem, one of the cardinal rules of creative writing is to turn off your inner sensor when creating the first draft. And if you're lucky, things will tumble out from your unconscious that will resonate in the unconsciousness of your readers and your story will strike deep. I love that one. The hard part is when pathologically it gets out of control and they give some examples in the book about, you know, people are saying things at random, not even coherent sentences, no connection, just whatever thought pops up, the filter is gone and you get super excited when you're talking this way. Desire dopamine gets revved up and overwhelms controlled dopamine's more logical approach to communication. So that's what they're talking about. We talked about that last week. Is the two dopamine powers you have, the desire and the control. If they're out of balance, that's when one goes from one side to the other. And this actually sounds kind of scary. But on the upside... Like people with mental illness, creative people such as artists, poets, scientists, and mathematicians will, at times, experience their thoughts running free. Creative thinking requires people to let go of the conventional interpretations of the world in order to see things in a brand new way. And who is coming to mind right away is Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge. You have that superpower within you. Well, how do you do this? How do you see things in a brand new way? You must break apart preconceived models of reality. But what is a model, and why do we build them? Well, material things, objects in the here and now, a peripersonal space, can be experienced with all five senses. This is interesting. Think about it. Let's say you're eating a sandwich. As an object moves away from us, from the... Harry Percival, here and now, to the extrapersonal dopamine. Our ability to perceive it drops off one sensory modality at a time. First, taste goes, then touch. As a thing moves further away, we lose our ability to smell it, hear it, and finally to see it. That's when things get interesting. How do we perceive something that is so far away that we can't even see it? We use our imagination. And this goes back to my little way of skipping dessert or something that's tempting. (laughs) I can imagine what it's like. I can imagine what it tastes like, smells like, even sounds like, for that matter. That's the power of our minds. Models, it goes on to say, can be helpful when we need to choose among a number of different options. They allow us to run through different scenarios in our imagination in order to select the best one. For instance, if I need to get from Washington to New York, I could take the train or bus or I could fly to decide which will be fastest, most comfortable, or most convenient. I experience each option in my imagination and then based on my inner experience, I make a choice in the real world. This process is called mental time travel and I love that because I I believe we don't even think about that. It's just so automatic that we have this amazing mental processor in our minds that is calculating the pros and cons of each option in order to come up with a choice. It goes on to say Using imagination, we project ourselves into various possible futures, mentally experience them, then decide how we're going to get the most out of what we see, how we're going to maximize our resources, whether it's a roomy seat, a cheap ticket, or a fast ride. This, to me, hones in on visualization. Mental time travel is a powerful tool of the dopamine system. It allows us to experience a possible, though presently unreal, future as if we were there. Mental time travel depends on models because we make predictions regarding situations we haven't yet experienced. How would my life be different if I bought this new dishwasher? What sorts of problems might an astronaut face if he traveled to Mars? What would happen if I ran that red light? Mental time travel is in constant use because it's the mechanism for making every conscious choice in life. To the brain, each deliberate choice about the future is a matter for the dopamine system and the models it has created. Whether you're deciding to order (laughs) a Burger King or the president is deciding whether to start a war, mental time travel is responsible for every next step in our lives. Visualization has finally been scientifically properly explained. How we envision things, we actually do it automatically. But if you want to change something, you have to sit down and really create through your imagination, your new vision for your future, your new vision for how your life will change your new vision. That is the power of the mental time travel. And (laughs) using that model can change your life. But what about if you didn't end up where you thought you'd be by now? Is it too late for you? Well, maybe the model that you've built needs to be fixed. And this is great information. How well our models fit the real world is of great importance. If our models are poor, we will make bad predictions about the future and subsequently bad choices. Poor models of reality may be caused by many things. Not having enough information, difficulty with abstract thinking, or the stubborn persistence of wrong assumptions. Such bad assumptions may be so harmful that they lead to psychiatric illnesses, such as anxiety and depression. For example, if a child grows up with critical parents, she may develop the conviction she's an incompetent person and this belief will shape the models of the world that she creates all her life and of course there's therapists for that and different treatments for that but i'm really glad they said that in this book because how you are raised as a child is of utmost utmost importance utmost importance. To every parent out there, to everyone out there, please remember that. Please remember you are molding a fresh human being. It's really important how you imprint upon them. Goes on to say, as we gain experience with the world, we develop better and better models. And this is the basis of wisdom. We embrace models that work well and discard the ones that fail to take us where we want to go. Knowledge passed on from previous generations can help us improve our models in a different way than direct experience. And I'm so thankful for that because that means all you have to do is read more. We have folk wisdom that tells us a stitch in time saves nine, as well as the inherited knowledge of the great scientists and. Philosophers. Read more. (laughs) It's, It's so beneficial. Breaking models, starting down the path of creativity. And they have a proverb in here if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Models are powerful too, but they have disadvantages. They can lock us into a particular way of thinking, causing us to miss out on opportunities to improve our world. So, and I give the example here on how the people who originally invented computers and keyboard and all the function keys, everything was typed, which is great. It was for me anyways. And then at Xerox, they thought outside of the keyboard and invented what is now known as the mouse. And when the mouse first came out, I I didn't like it. Because I knew all the function keys verbatim. But the mouse does make life easier and because they were able to think of a different model, we now get to enjoy that benefit. It's dopamine that builds models and dopamine that breaks them apart. Both require us to think about things that don't currently exist, but might in the future. That is where our imagination and our creativity really come to play. Discovering the source of creativity. Well, they go on to talk about uh, Ocean Vartanian, a researcher at York University in Toronto, who wondered about the creativity part of our brain. And he did brain scans on people, and while they were solving problems that required creativity, He found that, you know, the right side of the brain was activated. And then he did another experiment and asked people to use their imagination and imagine something real, such as a rose. Nothing lit up. They already knew that part. But when he asked them to imagine something that didn't actually exist in the world quite yet, that part of the brain lit up. So our creativity lights up. And maybe it's because when we are being creative, we behave a little bit like a person with schizophrenia. That's hilarious. But it is all making sense. We stop inhibiting aspects of reality that we had previously written off as unimportant. And we attach salience to things we once thought were Irrelevant. But how do you shock this to life? And why would you want to? Well, finding the neural basis of creativity has enormous potential because creativity is the most valuable resource in the world. Valuable resource in the world. Creativity is the most valuable resource in the world. Ah, you hold within yourself the most valuable resource in the world. For example, new ways of growing crops to feed millions of people, from candles to light bulbs, innovation is turning fuel into light, have decreased its cost by a factor of a thousand. Might there be a way to boost this priceless treasure? Would it be possible for someone to become more creative if a scientist stimulated the parts of the brain that are active during creative thinking? And they talk about a study here where direct current stimulation was used. In small studies, uh, these devices have been shown to accelerate learning, enhance concentration, and even treat clinical depression. To attempt to enhance creativity, electrodes were attached to the foreheads of 31 volunteers and the part of the brain that lies just behind the eyes was stimulated. Creativity was measured by testing the participant's ability to make analogies. And analogies represent a very dopaminergic way of thinking about the world. An analogy pulls out the abstract, unseen essence of a concept and matches it with a similar essence of an apparently unrelated concept. The body's senses perceive two different things, but reason understands how they are the same. Pairing a brand new idea with an old familiar one makes a new idea easier to understand. The ability to draw a connection between two things that had previously appeared to be unrelated is an important part of creativity, and it appears that it can be enhanced by electrical stimulation. And they go on to talk about a study that did just that. They stimulated parts of the brain just behind the eye to see if that enhanced people's Creativity, And it turns out their creativity was a little bit more obscure <laughs> than when someone was asked to be creative without that electrical stimulation. And the creativity was measured by the people's ability to create uh, analogies. And analogies represent a very dopaminergic way of thinking about the world. Here's an example. Light can sometimes act like individual bullets being fired from a gun and other times like ripples traveling across a pond. An analogy pulls out the abstract, unseen essence of a concept and matches it with similar essence of an apparently unrelated concept. The body's senses perceive two different things, but reason understands how they are the same. Pairing a brand new idea with an old familiar one makes the new idea Easier to understand. That is golden. Now we're getting into dreams where creativity and madness mingle. I love this. Few of us are geniuses or madmen, but we have all experienced the midpoint on this continuum. Dreams. Dreams are similar to abstract thought in that they work with material taken from the external world but they arrange the material in a way that are unconstrained by physical reality. Dreams often contain the theme of up, such as flying or falling from a great height. Dreams often involve future themes too, sometimes in the form of the pursuit of some intensely desired goal that's always just out of reach. Abstract, detached from the real world of the senses, dreams are dopamogenic. And that is so true, because your eyes are closed, you're not seeing anything, you're not tasting anything, you're not feeling anything, you're not... That part is shut down. And that's where interesting things start happening. And they say here, as a German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer once wrote, "'Dreams are brief madness, and madness a long dream.'" So people living with schizophrenia is like living in a dream. That's the correlation they make. Dopamine is unleashed during dreaming, freed from the restraining influence of the reality-focused here-and-now neurotransmitters. Activity in the here-and-now circuits is suppressed because sensory input from the outside world into the brain is blocked. This freedom allows dopamine circuits to generate the bizarre connections that are the hallmark of dreams. The trivial, the unnoticed, and the odd can be elevated to positions of prominence, supplying us with new ideas that otherwise would have been impossible to discover. And you hear about how great artists, writers, musicians, they see things in their dreams. They hear things. They hear the words. They write the music. It's really quite magical, and it really makes the interesting connections from your everyday life. But how do you harvest creativity from a dream? If dreaming is similar to psychosis, how do we get back to our normal selves? Does it happen all at once, or does it take some time to restore logical thought patterns? If it takes time, we are we a bit. Insane while the transition occurs? <laughs> Here's something else to consider. Sometimes when we're asleep, we dream, and other times we don't. As we make the transition from sleep to wakefulness, is our thought process different if we are waking from a dream or from dreamless sleep? How do you harvest that? How do you use it to your own benefit? And they have a little summary in the book. Based on Dr. Deidre Barrett's research, she's a psychologist and dream researcher at Harvard Medical School, and also wrote a book about this about dream incubation: how to solve problems in your sleep. So here's what they have to say: Choose a problem that's important to you, one that you have a strong desire to solve. The greater the desire, more likely it is that the problem will show up in a dream. Robert Greene talks about this in his book Mastery as well. Think about the problem before you go to bed. If possible, put it in the form of a visual image. If it's a problem with a relationship, imagine the person it involves. If you're looking for inspiration, imagine a blank piece of paper. If you're struggling with some sort of project, imagine an object that represents the project. Hold the image in your mind so it's the last thing you think of before you fall asleep. Make sure you have a pen and paper next to your bed. As soon as you wake up from a dream, write it down, whether or not you think it's related to the problem. Dreams can be tricky, and the answer may be disguised. It's important to write down the dream immediately, because the memory will evaporate in seconds if you begin to think about something else. Many people have had the experience of waking up from an intense dream one that's overflowing with personal meaning and then being unable to recall any of the details less than a minute later. It may take a few nights before you find what you're looking for and the solution you get from your dream may not be the best solution, but it will probably be a novel solution, one that approaches the problem from a new direction. And that's super fascinating because I've tried to put this into practice a little few different ways based on what I'm thinking about before I fall asleep, what I might see before I fall asleep, and then just letting the dreams come to me and see what happens. So the other day <laughs> I caught a mouse. Yeah, it was it was in my house and I'm like, oh, sorry, you have to go live outside now. But that was one of the last things I saw before I went to sleep. And to be honest, I wasn't really going, think mouse, think mouse, think mouse, before I went to sleep. But I dreamt about my cat, who passed away back in December, had caught this mouse. And I'm thinking, what just happened there? So, interestingly enough, if you can put the right thoughts in your mind, see the right vision before you go to bed, and I think this takes practice, see if it works for you. You never know. I'm going to put it into play for sure, especially after my mouse incident. <laughs> we continue by talking about how there is a correlation between fine arts and scientists. They have more in common than most people believe, because both are driven by dopamine. The poet composing lines about a hopeless lover is not so different from the physicist's scribbling formulas about excited electrons. They both require the ability to look beyond the world of the senses into deeper, more profound world of abstract ideas. The better you are at managing the most complex abstract ideas, the more likely you are to be an artist. This similarity between art and science became especially important. Ha <laughs> ha! Who remembers this? When a computer programming crisis occurred at the turn of the millennium, the Y2K, right? In fact, there was such a shortage of computer programmers that some companies recruited out-of-work musicians because they were able to learn programming so easily. That's where letting your children be creative Having them engage in not only science or only math, but engaging them on the art side. Playing the piano, expressing their creativity in some way makes such a difference. And it goes on to talk about why geniuses are jerks. Well, music and math go together because elevated levels of dopamine often come as a package deal. If you are highly dopamajernic in one area, you're likely to be highly dopamajernic in another. Scientists are artists, and musicians are mathematicians. But there's a downside. Sometimes having a lot of dopamine is a liability. High levels of dopamine suppress here and now functioning. So brilliant people are often poor at human relationships. We need here and now empathy to understand what's going on in other people's minds, an essential skill for social interaction. <laughs> They're picking on scientists in this book. but says the scientist you meet at the cocktail party won't shut up about his research because he can't tell how bored you are. <laughs> in similar vein, Albert Einstein once said, my passionate sense of social justice and social responsibility has always contrasted oddly with my pronounced lack of need for direct contact with other human beings. And I love humanity, but I hate humans. The abstract concepts of social justice and humanity came easily, but the concrete experience of encountering another person was too hard. Yes, Einstein's uh, personal life was a little rocky, but what have it been because his first love was Lena, his violin? guess we'll never know. There was almost certainly a genetic contribution to Einstein's dopamaginic traits. One of his sons became an internationally recognized expert on hydraulic engineering. The other was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 20 and died in an asylum. Isaac Newton, who discovered calculus and the law of universal gravitation, was one of those troubled geniuses. Newton was haunted by insanity. He spent hours trying to find hidden messages in the Bible, and wrote over a million words on religion and the occult. He pursued the medieval art of alchemy, obsessively searching for the Philosopher's Stone, a mythical substance that alchemists believed had magical properties and could even help humans achieve immortality. At the age of 50, Newton became fully psychotic and spent a year in an insane asylum. Dopamine, yeah, that's a crazy little thing in our brains, isn't it? But many brilliant artists, scientists, and business leaders are thought or known to have had mental illness. To name a few, before you start being hard on yourself, Beethoven, Van Gogh, Charles Darwin, George O'Keefe, Nikola Tesla, Virginia Woolf, and chess master Bobby Fischer, to name a few. Dopamine gives us the power to create. It allows us to imagine the unreal and connect the seemingly unrelated. It allows us to build mental models of the world that transcend mere physical description, moving beyond sensory impression to uncover the deeper meaning of what we experience. Then, like a child knocking over a tower blocks, dopamine demolishes its own models so that we can start fresh, and find new meaning in what was once familiar. A new vision, a new day, starting fresh. But that power comes at a cost. The hyperactive dopamine system of creative geniuses put them at risk of mental illness. Sometimes the world of the unreal breaks through its natural bounds, creating paranoia, delusions, and feverish excitement of manic behavior. In addition, heightened dopaminergic activity may overwhelm here and now systems, hampering one's ability to form human relationships and navigate the day-to-day world of reality. For some, it doesn't matter. The joy of creation is the most intense joy they know, whether they are artists, scientists, prophets, or entrepreneurs. Whatever they're calling, they never stop working. What they care about most is their passion for creation, discovery, or enlightenment. They never relax, never stop to enjoy the good things they have. (laughs) Instead, they're obsessed with building a future that never arrives. Because when the future becomes the present, enjoying it requires activation of touchy-feely here-and-now chemicals that something highly dopaminergic people dislike and avoid. They serve the public well, But no matter how rich, famous, or successful they become, they're almost never happy. Certainly never satisfied. Evolutionary forces that promote the survival of the species produce these special people. Nature drives them to sacrifice their own happiness for the sake of bringing into the world new ideas and innovations that benefit the rest of us. If you've taken nothing away from this fabulous chapter on creativity and madness, I want to remind you, we're all born with a gift. We're all born with purpose. And life's journey is to hone and develop that gift so we can flourish and inspire others. And whether you're a creative genius or a little bit on the madness side, remember. The creative mind is the most potent force on earth. And if you use it to your benefit, you will live a more inspired life. Well, if you like the show, share it with somebody you know. And hey, hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss the next chapter on the Molecule of More. It's all about dopamine, politics. Why can't we all just get along? We'll see you then.